As you see, we come then to the preaching of God's Word in Psalm 51, and we look particularly at verses 14 and 15. So here are these two verses, Psalm 51, verses 14 and 15. David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. We take these two together because they parallel one another, this desire to be pardoned, delivered from his guilt, and his appeal to God, who is the God of his salvation. What a beautiful expression. And what to what end? That he might, as it is in verse 14, sing aloud of thy righteousness. And in verse 15, that with his lips and his mouth he might show forth thy praise. And so David's desire is God's grace applied so as to fill him with that knowledge of grace to the end that he might give praise unto God. And what a beautiful thing that this teaches us, the way of praise by the grace of God. Now, if we think at all about the Scriptures, we realize that man is a creature created for praise. This is part of what we are, and how could it be otherwise? We are, of all creatures at our creation, most highly privileged because we bear the image of God. We bear His likeness, not in perfection, of course, even in Adam's innocence, but nonetheless truly that we were given that which the strongest creatures in this world were not given, and we were made for the fellowship of God to enjoy the greatest good, the most bountiful provision ever to be known, to gaze upon and to enjoy the friendship of God. And yet, of course, though this would elicit praise, though this would draw out praise to walk in fellowship with so great a God, sin has entered in and defiled that work and has changed the harmony and the melody of that fellowship into that cacophony of that horrid sound of sin. But God has been pleased out of sinners to redeem a people. And we see, for instance, in Isaiah 43.21, God speaking of that people, this people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. What's God doing in calling a people again to himself? But he's forming a people again for his fellowship by his grace to rejoice in him and to show forth his praise. Now, this isn't to be so reduced to this thought that, well, we're just sort of machines and mechanisms that then automatically do these things because God continues to make use of the faculties of our soul, our thoughts and our wills and so on, and He enlivens them so that there's a real sincerity in our souls rejoicing in our God. So it's not so mechanical like a, 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 some sort of... Uh, instrument hitting, being hit play, and then all of a sudden the music turns on. But rather, there is a, a gracious and uh, vital work the Lord is doing in His people as they taste and see that God is good. Their souls are gladdened by His goodness, and it 
springs forth into praise. You can see something of this in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, ye are chosen generation, and so on, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness. You see, God's people, having been redeemed out of darkness and bondage and all of that brokenness, are redeemed unto this kingdom of light and gladness wherein there's rejoicing. But brethren, the psalm has reminded us much that even the choicest saints of God still have something of sin within them that will break forth. And when it does so, what we see in these verses is that it hinders this chief calling of our lives to praise delightfully in God. And David reflects on that. And so notice the petition in verse 14 is in various ways stated, but what he's asking for is his deliverance from his murder, blood guiltiness, to the end that he might again engage in the glad thanksgiving and praise of God. Notice the text. He uses the word deliver, which means rescue. Uh, Take me, help me. From what? He says, from blood guiltiness. You'll notice perhaps the margin in your English Bible says bloods. It's plural. The word is used frequently in the Scriptures to refer to murder. And so, for instance, when in Genesis 4, verses 10 and 11, we see God interacting with Cain, he speaks of his brother's blood, which has been shed by Cain, who killed Abel. This is the same word. It's just in the plural, which is an intensifying of that in Hebrew. And so, David is here confessing again, saying, here's my great problem. I stand as one guilty of sin. And except this be dealt with, except I be rescued from it in all the ways already petitioned, washing, pardoning, cleansing, and so on, except that happens, except you rescue me from my guilt, my sin, I'll never be able to experience the great gladness of rejoicing in you. This is why he says, deliver me, as he says, from blood guiltiness, O God. But then notice the foundation that is extended from that. Thou God of my salvation. Thou God of my deliverance. We could say it this way. Save me, O God of my salvation. Deliver me, O God of my deliverance. He's appealing to God who has revealed Himself to His people as the Savior. And so he's appealing to God for God to do what he's promised to do. Not in a presumptuous air of haughtiness, but rather, as we've seen consistently, this sense of humility, a broken and contrite heart, as will be mentioned in verse 17, has been experienced by David. And he longs for the restoration of his soul unto the fellowship of God and out of his state of guilt to the end that he might sing praise to God. Notice verse 14, And my tongue shall sing aloud. The words here, sing aloud, come from a word meaning to cry out, as when one who conquers in battle and is overcome with the rush of adrenaline of this great victory over this perilous army would shout out in victory, and his fellow warriors would cry out as well, David's using that word saying, I long 
from the depths of my being to cry out of what? Not of my doing, but of thy righteousness. And this continues in verse 15. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. David doesn't want just to have a song restored to him. David doesn't just want this generic feeling of happiness and gladness. In other words, David isn't joining with the many counselors today who sell books and air podcasts and talk about how to be a happy person. He's not interested in any of that nonsense that is skin deep and absolutely worthless. He's saying, I realize that my greatest joy consists in knowing you. And so I desire to know you. But I cannot engage in that great delight except my fault, which I've brought to pass by my action, is dealt with. And I'm not the one who can deal with it. That's why he once again casts it all upon God. God, you deliver me. God, you open my lips. I need you to do these things. And do we not see again throughout this psalm, again and again, it becomes almost redundantly so, that the way of grace is the way of casting all upon God to perform His gracious work in us, that He would pardon us, that He would wash us, that He would cleanse us, that He would purge us, that He would make us to hear joy and gladness, that He would create in us a clean heart, that He would restore to us the joy of salvation, and that with this most heinous of sins, even murder, that God would deliver us from it. And in doing so, He would restore us to the enjoyment of God, to the consuming delight of God, that our mouths, as expressive of our hearts, would be full of the praise of God. Well, brethren, as we think of this trans uh, sort of journey from guilt to gratitude, we'll consider two things. Firstly, how sin hinders praise, and secondly, how grace restores praise. We do so in treating this passage, uh, remembering as we began that God has made us as a people for praise. The world doesn't get this, but we increasingly through the Scriptures discern it. The, The purpose of humanity is to witness and delight in the work and Word of God. That's the purpose. We are a people who are supposed to be gazing upon and delighting in God has revealed to us, which then is to bring from us a sincere praising of God. If you want just one evidence of that, all of the pictures of heaven afforded to us are of a people who are consumed with God and never cease praising Him. This is why when the world talks of heaven, it talks about the absolute most vain images one can imagine. Well, at least Joe's up there playing golf. Well, at least they're now doing all of their fun things and partying and up and so on. They have so undershot, they have so missed out, that if you actually extend that forever, it actually becomes vain and worthless in our conception. Who hasn't been engaged in some of the most enjoyable things this world has to offer, only to get tired of it? And we might repeat it a day or two or three But at the end of a week of it, two weeks of it, a month of it, eventually we say, you know what? I've had enough. It's time for me to move on from this. Now, whereas the world can't conceive how a Christian should ever find delight in God, the believer has been brought to see 
the little I know of God, the little more so that I've tasted of God, is so rich of gladness that I could never have enough of this. And the more that we consider heaven as this grand display of the glory of His grace and the honor of His name, we realize that what will happen is the ongoing, ceaseless joy of God's people praising Him. And so now we come to, firstly, how sin hinders praise. Because when we think about that as our goal, as our end, we can see in our experience this great opponent to our chief joy, which is God and praising God. Well, how is it then that sin hinders praise? Well, firstly, as we can see in the expressions here, sin burdens the soul as with a weight. You can see this when David is expressing this, deliver me from bloods, from guilt, from murder. David so casually dealt with Bathsheba's husband and wrote this letter. You think of the absolute deliberate wickedness of this. He writes the letter to his commander and he places it in the hand of Uriah himself. And so Uriah, unbeknownst to him, simply being faithful, takes this letter from David, hands it to his commander, and the commander opens it and he reads the command of David, set this man in the forefront of the hottest battle that he should die. Now we back up and say, why was that done? It's because David, in a moment of great wickedness, had had an adulterous relation with his wife, with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And now she's conceived. And Uriah proved faithful and wouldn't compromise his principles. So David feels himself stuck that if he is to evade the consequences of his sin, Uriah must as a pawn in his work be sacrificed for his comfort and for his satisfaction. Brother, notice this one thing. That sin can be so calculating and deliberate and we think that we're the ones playing the chess game of sin. If I move here, this will certainly be checkmate for all the other things that could happen. And we sort of make our movement and we sit back and say, now it's all under control. Well, it may be for a season. It seems months passed from both the adultery and uh, Uriah's death. And David seems to have been unchecked in his conscience But then when God brought Nathan and he said, Thou art the man, David now is inflamed with all of the horror of his sin. We ought to remember this. Get it deeply within our consciousness. That every temptation that's saying, it's not a big deal. You can contain this. You can control it. It won't fall out bad. Just think it through. Get it under control. And everything will move on smoothly with the rest of your life. We need to engage in this truth. Sin will either burden our souls now by God's gracious conviction or it will everlastingly burden the soul in everlasting damnation. Sometimes people think of conviction and convicting books and convicting sermons as if it's a bad thing. And they say, you know what, we need more happiness. But the problem is that first we need to sense the real burden. As we'll see, it's this is the method by which God then erupts all joy unto us. Notice in Psalm 38 how this idea of a weight or a burden is expressed by none less than David. Psalm 38 verses 4 through 6, he says, For mine iniquities are gone over my head. 
as an heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. It goes on in various different ways describing. But notice verse 6, I'm troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. We have no doubt but that sin and conviction of sin can have the feeling of weight upon our soul. But this is, in some sense, a metaphor. It's speaking of as a physical weight burdens our bodies and disables us from the proper movement and liberty of engagement with the things around us. So sin, once our souls are convicted by it, burdens our souls and hinders them from the engagement in the spiritual work to which we are called. And brethren, this is true of believers. Believers are considered. David is here before us as a believer and he senses the burden. And what it is that's burdening him is that he sees, as it were, the weight of his sin. His soul is under its burden and he realizes, I would be deceiving myself if I could think that in this experience I can with gladness praise God. Why? Because my sin is ever before me. My sin I, owe, I ever see as we read elsewhere. Sin burdens the soul. Brethren, we should think of that. When temptation comes, we ought to realize it promises so much lightness and levity and happiness and joy and so on. And it's as if springtime erupts upon the scene. But all of that's a facade. And it's a thin veneer behind which we would see the shackles of a burden that would weigh us down. Without God's grace, everyone would prove to be Judas Iscariot who could not escape the burden of his guilt but was his own murderer. And oh, what the burden that he thought to escape by physical death would only take him down into the depths of the abyss of hell. Sin burdens the soul and thus hinders praise. But sin also thus silences the soul. Notice verse 15, his mouth is closed. In his request, open thou my lips, is instructive, teaching us that his mouth, as it were, is closed to praise. We think of how sin has its song. There's the carousing and the wicked songs of godless men. There's smiles on their faces. There's the drunken activities of all sorts. We have Mardi Gras that's gone on and all of the wickedness that's prevailed in various places, happiness, smiles, parades, and all such things. And yet, if you were to look at it, the absolute emptiness of those smiles is actually to the Christian a source of great burden for souls. They smile at their own death. They smile at their own judgment. They smile at these things. Well, the Christian comes and experiences the conviction of sin and it silences their souls for a season because they have the bitter taste of their own shame in their mouth. And that doesn't cause us to smile. Children, you know this. You know, if you have some Kool-Aid or lemonade, you take a drink of it, it's sweet, and it's balanced and all that, it glands you, you smile, and there's a sense of happiness. But if you're having to take certain medicines without all the flavoring and so on, you take it and it makes your lips pucker or vinegar, and you take it and it makes you sour out and so on. All of these things hit us. Well, sin's like that. It makes us, instead of being gladdened with the sweetness of that taste, it actually makes bitterness be felt in our souls. The conviction 
of sin silences our souls in the praise of God because it stands before us as this obstacle. Notice in Psalm 32 at verse 3, David speaks of being kept silence. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. But what is it that caused him to be silent? What is it that was causing such agony? You can see both of these coming together. The silence of his mouth and the burden of his soul. Well, what released it was his confession of sin. I acknowledged my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. See, here's the point. David sees his sin and he is silenced by it. There will be certainly the wailing of agony by the damned. But there will be no one who is able to speak back to God when he issues the common or the condemnation unto them. They go into the blackness of agony. They go into the pit of damnation. And their mouths will only be expressive of torment, never to sing in gladness again. Well, the Christian, though spared from hell, knows something of the bitterness of sin. And it silences and hinders them from the expression of joy and gladness. Well, what are they to do? Well, it's sin that hinders praise. Notice, secondly, then, how grace restores praise. This is why David is coming to God so fully, casting all upon His mercy, casting all upon His grace. And he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Oh, what an expression. Mark it down well, Thou God of my salvation. The restoration of our soul's peace and our soul's praise is from the God against whom we've sinned. We've sinned against Him. We can't make it right. You ever done something and you go to the person and say, you know, what do I need to do to make it right? Well, in this world, that makes sense. We maybe took something that's not ours and it's broken. What do I need to do to make it right? Well, that costs you know this amount of money. Either go buy and replace it or give me the money, I'll take care of it, whatever. We'll call it even. You know, I've done this. I've taken from your time. What do I need to do to make it right? Well, this is the way and so on. That's appropriate. We can't go to God and say, what do I need to do to make it right? Because we have, as it were, attacked the glory of His name. We have uh, darkened the great grandeur of His holy name. We've sinned against Him who is infinite and eternal, who is only worthy of praise. But this doesn't mean that there's no hope of restoration. The hope rests in Him. O God, Thou God of my salvation, Notice, you can see this idea come up again and again as David's appealing to God. Have mercy upon me, O God. And he cries out to him, verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. All of it is always putting it on God. God, you do this. I can't do it. I need you to provide for it. And what's taking place is, David is realizing, though there are things I need to do in the sense of repenting and cutting off, fundamentally, 
that must be the fruit of God's first doing in my life. In other words, if ever I'm to repent, if ever I'm to turn from these things, if ever I'm to put to death that which remains of the old man, it must be because God first works in my life. I need God in mercy to be merciful to me. I need Him to pardon me. I need Him to create a clean heart within me. I need Him to make me to hear joy and gladness and so on. And so what God is, or what David's doing is saying, God, if ever my mouth is gladly to praise Your name again, it must be as You save and deliver me from my guilt. What we see is grace addresses our sin. We can't truly and fully and fundamentally address it. We need to make confession, as we see in Psalm 32. Perhaps we need to confess to others, as we see elsewhere in the Scriptures. But fundamentally, the guilt of sin can never be dealt with by our own works. Our tears never wash out the defilement of the stain of sin. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't cry for our sins and so on. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be sorry for our sins, of course. But what's being said is, the obstacle and hindrance of the profanity of our sin will never be washed from us apart from God's grace addressing our sin. What hope do we have for that? Well, our hope is in what God has revealed of Himself. He's revealed Himself to us as the God not only of salvation, you understand. That would be sufficient. But as David, by God's grace, discerns God has revealed Himself as the God of my salvation. And this is the great privilege of the covenant of grace. That God has come near to us and said, I am your God. You are my people. And that foundation undergirding all of our hope is this revelation that God has disclosed Himself to us as our Savior. And grace then addresses that, delivering us, rescuing us. Scripture, both before and after, but also in this psalm, speaks of that deliverance in a variety of ways. As the pardon of sin, as the washing of sin, as the cleansing of sin, and so on. And David is simply summarily saying, deliver me from it, rescue me from it. And what God does is graciously addresses the guilt of of our sin. He does deliver. He does rescue us from what we deserve. We ought to see that our sin deserves, makes us deserving of God's judgment. But praise to God, Christ Jesus, who undertook for us our salvation, delivers us from that judgment. So when David says, deliver me, we can say it this way, deliver me from murder. He's not sort of the careless careless convict that knows the right words to say and utters them off and so on. David, notice, is in angst within his soul. And he's saying, I need rescue. And my only hope is, Lord, that you, the God of my deliverance, my salvation, would do so. So he addresses our sin. He pardons our sin. He purifies us and so on. But notice grace also fills our mouths. And so whereas sin silences our mouths from the praise of God, grace fills our mouths. Notice you see this when in verse 14 he speaks of, My tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. 
Isn't that a strange thing in our first sort of pass to think? He's asking for gracious deliverance. He's speaking of salvation. But now he's speaking of God's righteousness. How can that be of any comfort to a soul that has sinned? God is righteous, which means he detests unrighteousness. God is righteous, which means he will most certainly punish the evildoer. How is it then that David would be brought by God's grace to be filled with praises of God's righteousness? Well, there are several ways. One is that God is righteous, as John writes, to forgive us our sins for Jesus' sake. Paul makes this quite plain. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. God punishes Christ for our sins. And so that He might be just or righteous and the justifier of the one who believes upon Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not all that there is, but there is a transaction upon the cross whereby God punishes Christ as the sin bearer. Our guilt, our defilement, our sins, whatever they might be, as heinous as murder or adultery, as heinous as idolatry, or whatever else it may be, was placed upon Christ so that when we cry out to God for grace, it is grace in that it's applied to us. Because we and of ourselves have done nothing to qualify for that salvation. But it is a righteous thing of God because He has justly punished Christ for our sins. You can see this in 1 John earlier uh, referenced when John is writing about this very theme and speaks of the way of pardon and our salvation. Verse 9 of John, 1 John 1, If we confess our sins, He that is God, notice these words, is faithful and just. The word just is elsewhere translated righteous. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is that so? Notice 1 John 2, verse 2. He, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins. When we appeal to God for His gracious salvation, there is the provision of grace and pardon to us based upon His righteous dealing with Christ. And brethren, this is what starts to restore our praise. Because it's not asking a favor of God. You know, we might come to someone that we have a relationship with either by ourselves or by parents or friends and say, you know, would you do me a favor here um, and just sort of look the other way or give me this, I need a little help or whatever. God isn't just giving out these favors and sort of saying, well, I guess I'll forgive your sins. He's executing righteousness. Because when we come as those who are believers upon Christ, we come and we point, as it were, to the Lamb of God and say, He is my propitiation. He is my salvation. He is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And for His sake, forgive me. And when that happens and is applied to us, we're singing of all of God's attributes 
But two that stand forth, of course, are His grace and, as here, His righteousness. And it starts to fill our minds with the magnitude of His wisdom and of His grace and of His power and of all that He is that is displayed in the cross. You know, as a child, we're taught simple truths. They're truths that are easy to understand in one sense. You know, Jesus died for His sinning people. He is the Savior of sinners. If you believe upon Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And a little child can understand that. We thank God for that. But as we grow, we realize that what seems so simple and so easy to acknowledge is actually so immensely rich in all that is bound up in those things. It's sort of like this. You think of the map of the United States. You know, you have New York and Maine in the northeast. You have Florida in the southeast. You have Texas down in the south and California on the west. And you can look at a little map and you can say, hey, I get it. I see where these states are and here's the Appalachian Mountains and here's the Rocky Mountains and there are the Great Lakes and there's the Gulf of Mexico. And a child can look at that and say, hey, I get it. I get the layout. But then you go on a trip and you start to see Look at what the Great Plains are. Children understand the Great Plains are this, is this vast amount of space where there are these rolling gentle hills that go off into the distance. And then the Rocky Mountains are these great mountains and you see them as you drive out west and this little shadow then becomes these uh, lofty mountains you must look up to and you start to see. And if you go deeper, you say, look at the range of mountains. I can't see beyond the end of the mountains. You get to the ocean, you see, look at this expanse that surrounds, and so on. What's the point? The child who looks at the map truly is understanding something about the layout of the nation, the topography, the geography, the relation of this state to that, where the rivers and mountains and hills and lakes and all these things are. But once you start to journey through the land, you see there's such a rich complexity that is far greater than what this little map seems to contain. Brethren, how much more with reference to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's true, this little snippet that we can sort of summarize the gospel by. Jesus Christ died for our sins. It's a true statement. But as we start to wade into it, we see this immense display of God's wisdom. His wisdom, His power, His providence preparing the way. These promises and prophecies hundreds of years earlier that were perfectly being brought forth, executing all things. And you think of these stories that take place of uh, Ruth and uh, you think of David and all of these things. And this is the line of the Messiah perfectly brought together for the fullness of time wherein God brought forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem them that were under the law. What's the point? What happens is the more we meditate upon the way God has brought about our pardon, the more our hearts and thus our mouths are filled with praise to God. The person who says, you know, I I sort of hear you talk about heaven, and it makes me a little concern because I think I might get bored in heaven only praising God. Like, is there going to be something else? Is there going to be something better? Is there going to be something added to it? What's being shown is how little thought there has been given to the rich tapestry 
of the grace, wisdom, righteousness, and power of God. When God's grace has been brought to address our burden, you see, what God is doing in one sense is He's priming the pump by conviction. Look how I can do nothing to address my sin. I can't address it. Is it not the same thing that He does in other deliverances? He brings Israel to the Red Sea. And He sees this expanse of the sea before them. And they turn around and they see Pharaoh's camp coming against them. And what do they do? They lose their mind. They say, we are brought out to here to die. It would have been better for us to stay back there. Why have you brought us out here to perish at the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians? And then God, of course, displays His purpose. He draws near, protects the Israelites. He divides the Red Sea. They go across on dry land. A wall of water on this side. A wall of water on that side. They're going right through this great body of water on dry land. They see the salvation of God. And then the Egyptians try to do the same. They get stuck in the mud. And the water comes crashing upon them. And as is recorded, the Israelites see the corpses of their enemies upon the seashore. What happens after? Lo and behold, their mouths are filled with praise to God. You see, deliverance by God's grace ever leads to praise because it fills us with a bit more of the understanding of this limitless, infinite, gloriously good and gracious God. Grace fills our mouths. It's preparative. Our conviction is and it's bitterness and sourness and it's shame that hits us and it brings us to this desperate cry, Oh God, deliver me from my sin. I can't do it. And God then delivers us and it fills us with gladness and it fills us with praise that He's done so in a most gracious and righteous way. It fills our hearts with God's personal grace to us. Deliver whom? Not deliver sinners, though that of course is a prayer we may pray, but deliver me. I need you to deliver me, O God, of my salvation. I need it. I'm not worthy. I can get my head in some way around you delivering the great and noble ones of this world. But O Lord, who am I? What am I? Look upon me as we stand, as it were, with that tax collector of old, the sinner. Deliver me. Pardon me. Be merciful to me. And when He does, oh, how it gladdens us, filling our mouths with His praise. It fills us as well with the sense of God's faithfulness as it is His righteousness displaying His faithfulness, all of which then causes us to express the same with our mouths. Notice, It gives us delight in God. Verse 15, O Lord, open Thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth Thy praise. You know, a mark of a believer who is sensitive to these things is that he is often speaking about God's goodness and grace. Now, there are different personalities, and there are different gifts and graces and so on that people have in different measures. But where there is a due sense of the Lord's grace there will be some expression of the Lord's praise 
for the goodness of His salvation to us. Our mouths will show forth Thy praise. You know, it's an easy barometer to find out the sort of sense of one's desires. Just listen to them talk. What do they talk about? You can find out a person likes this sport by just hearing them talk about it. You can hear that people love politics because they just go on and on and on about it. You can hear people love their children because they're always tell you tell a story about your child and all of a sudden they have 35 stories about their children. You tell them about this thing and then they're interrupting you saying, well, I've got a story like that and they go on about it, right? They love these things. They talk about these things. It's showing where their heart's affections are. Now, there's something that is, of course, right about that, so long as these things are lawful and good. But brethren, when once we have a taste of the Lord's goodness to us, will it not be the case that our mouths speak about Him? And so Christians are those who speak oft about God. Not in abstract terms, though they can go on and wax eloquent about the various perfections of God and so on, but rather in praising God because of His salvation to us. There is an unbreakable link between the personal experience of grace and pardon and the personal expression of God's praise and thanksgiving. That where there is the one, there is the other. You find someone who delights in praising God, who delights in His grace and loves to sing of His pardon and tell others about Him, and you'll find one who has experienced something of the grace of God. You find one who has experienced something of the grace of God, and they can't help but speak of those things. They start to dominate conversations. They start to come and speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Notice, for instance, in Psalm 103, you can see this connection in verses 1-3, through when there again, you have a psalm of David who knew this link quite well. He's stirring up his own soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And he'll go on to list a number of them. But you see the first? Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. The first in the long chain of other things that are connected to it is that He is the one who forgives all my iniquities. Certainly we ought to praise God as David goes on to for healing our diseases, who delivers us from destruction, who crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies, satisfies our mouth with good things. We can't help but praise Him for all the mercies we receive. But there, first and foremost, is this delightful acknowledgement that God has forgiven my sins. Now, we don't know if Psalm 103 is written before or after Psalm 51, but it doesn't matter. The point is there is a connection of delightful remembrance of God's grace by the one who has experienced God's grace. And if it is that we are to be a people of praise and we are a people who have sinned, here's the point. We have need of God's deliverance, pardon, and forgiveness. And we can go through all sorts of motions and actions. We can do all the right things outwardly. We can be earnest in contending for the purity of God's worship and all these things. We can learn the Psalms by heart, sing them and so on, but there will never be the melody of true gratitude unless first we have experienced the grace of God's free pardon and of His gracious deliverance 
being the God of our salvation. Do you remember as we read earlier in Isaiah in chapter 12, what a beautiful expression it is for us and one worthy of our meditation. There, Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 speaks of, In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. Thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He He also has become my salvation, and so on. You see this great binding together of His being my salvation and His being my song of praise. Well, brethren, notice as we close and see clearly what's already been expressed, that the outworking of sin in our lives will be to the experiencing of the burden and the silencing influence, the deadening influence of sin. We have been made to show forth God's praise, which is not some burden we bear, but rather the privilege we're granted. Because in order to praise God, we get to know God. We have to understand Him. You know, there are things that we learn, of course, a little bit, the way an engine works or the way muscles work and so on, and we think we know a little bit. You come with someone who has studied those things, and they can go on and on and open wonders that you never considered. And you sit there and you say, tell me more, I want to know more about these things. Well, if that's true about temporal and earthly and uh, little things, how much more about God? That the, if we're ever to praise Him more, we must know Him more. We must discern Him more, understand and experience His grace more. And so to be called to this high calling of praising God is no burden to us. It's the greatest privilege afforded to us because this means then that our calling is to know the Lord and to know His love to us and His ways with us, His will for us, and so on. And what does sin do? It hinders our great privilege. It opposes this great thing. We look upon things in this world with annoyance that hinder us from simple tasks that we have our mind set upon. We want to go and visit this place and then we're going down the highway and our car's little light reminder comes on and instantly the feeling hits our stomach and we say, great, what is this and how is it going to hinder this trip that I'm taking? We have a planned trip and we start to get a sniffle and an illness comes upon us. What's going to happen, right? These things hinder us. We become annoyed with it. We look upon those things with some degree even of disgust. That's how we ought to look upon sin. Because sin hinders the greatest privilege we have of knowing God and worshiping Him. We should see that every sin is the certain hindrance to our highest joy. Brethren, if it is that we're to grow in our praise as those who have sinned, we must be well-versed in God's gracious way of salvation. And so if you look back at the psalm as we close, one person could look at this and say, you know, this is all just the same thing over and over. And in one sense it is. Fundamentally, David's coming to God saying, be gracious to me, forgive me, cleanse me. All of that's right. But what you also see is the work of a master soul by God's grace, seeing the various ways and expressions and avenues of God's grace being applied. And what he's saying is, I want the full spectrum of your grace. I want all that it is you give to me. 
And brethren, it's no wonder that David is the sweet psalmist of Israel because David was one who was well taught of Israel's God. He knew God as his God. He knew the salvation of God as his salvation. And so it's no wonder that he gives us some of the richest uh, substance of expressing God's praise. Though, of course, we do not deny or in any way limit the fact that these are God's inspired words. But we acknowledge that God used David through his experiences, the enlargement of his soul, the experiences of God's grace, which then was used to form these words under the superintendence of God and his most sovereign work to give us these rich expressions of the word of Christ that our own souls would be stirred up. What's the point? If you and I would grow in our praise, certainly we need to understand something of our sins, but we also need to understand more of our Savior, more of His grace, more of this uh, rich uh, uh, connection of God's way of salvation. And as we gather up God's gracious salvation, what we'll find is we can't help but praise God. The more we consider Him, it's as if we're filling ourselves with this uh, readiness to explode in the eruption of praise to God. Brethren, think on the saints in heaven. Their praise is unending, but they never cease gazing upon the Lamb of God. They never cease considering Christ Jesus the Savior. They are consumed with Christ and they experience the riches of His love, the wonder of His person and grace and salvation, which then brings to them from them the unending testimony and tribute of praise to Him. And if we would have a foretaste of that experience here, it is in the same way as David. Oh God, let me know Your salvation, and then I will sing Your praise. So brethren, be much in considering Christ and the salvation He has brought to us, then your praise to Him would not only be much and multiplied, but sincerely so by His grace. Would you stand with me then for prayer? Let us pray.